to 2 Corinthians we turn, and to the second chapter, where we left off at verse 5 last time. You might remember that uh, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians was sometimes a difficult and painful one. Though he had planted the church by God's grace and ministered to them personally during the 18 months he spent with them, God mightily blessing his ministry in their midst, he heard after leaving there that many, many problems had cropped up in his absence. And we spent all last year and the better part of this year uh, considering his response to those problems in his first letter, drawing application for ourselves to the church in Owensboro uh, from those 16 chapters along the way. His desire was, of course, uh, to correct, to instruct, to lead them both to think and to act according to God's word so that they might also enjoy the blessing that God attaches to such obedience for them and for their city. More problems crept up after that, uh, which occasioned a visit, a short visit uh, by Paul to that congregation, which visit apparently did not go spectacularly well. Uh, Paul returned to Ephesus grieved by what he had seen and experienced. He sent another letter to the Corinthians. We don't have that, a copy of that one, but that one's called uh, sometimes the severe letter with more correction. And, uh, and happily sometime after that, when as we understand from this letter that we have from 2 Corinthians, there was, there was repentance. And the church in Corinth did take a turn. They turned to put God's commandments that they had received from Paul into practice. And one of those commandments you might remember from many months ago is to implement church discipline in the congregation where it was needed. Apparently, they applied the discipline as needed, but the pendulum may have been swinging too far, uh, because now Paul tells them, in one particular case anyway, that the discipline that they had applied was enough, and now restoration was in order. And that's where we pick up at verse 5 after we pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for preserving your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit and uh, guiding and leading and directing Paul as he wrote this letter, and for preserving it to this day, at 2,000 years later, we may hear your voice, even here in this house. Open our hearts, the ears of our hearts to receive it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted 
by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In preparation for this sermon, I I pulled up the sermon that I preached to you from 1 Corinthians 5 last April, in which Paul urges the church to exercise church discipline, and remembered that I entitled that sermon An Unpleasant Necessity, because Scripture says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Specifically, the the writer of the letter to the Hebrews writes, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's why I've entitled this sermon, as you see in the bulletin, A Pleasant Outcome. The Corinthian church did what was required. They applied discipline as Paul instructed them in his last letter in a situation in which it was required. In fact, I would argue that the person that we've just read about here in 2 Corinthians is the same person, the very same with whom Paul had concerned himself in 1 Corinthians 5, the member of their church who was engaged in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. It seems entirely likely that when Paul paid his short, painful visit to them sometime between the sending of these two letters, that uh, on that visit, Paul was uh, confronted by that very man who uh, aggravated the situation by abrading Paul, by verbally taking him on because of the stance that Paul had taken in his case and brazenly rebelled against the apostle. That would certainly account for the fact that the situation here seems also to have some personal overtones to it, as we've just read in this passage. There are many reasons to support that theory. It is, I say, just a theory, but uh, both accounts mention that a single uh, person was involved. In both instances, the Corinthians have a reason to be ashamed and grieved. In the first, Paul requires that the man be censured. In the second, that is exactly what has happened, and now the censure is to be lifted. Both mention restoration as the end goal of church discipline. Both passages refer to Jesus Christ, and in both Paul acts as Christ's representative who places the matter before the face of Jesus. And finally, in both accounts, Satan's role is specifically mentioned, either by a way of destructive force in that man's life or deliberate deceit, Uh, you know, either destroying the disciplined person's sinful nature or deceiving the repentant but for whatever reason, not immediately received back person uh, in the congregation uh, and to the congregation's arms of love. The similarities are really quite striking. Others are not nearly so convinced as I, but it really hardly matters a great deal to the point this morning. What we have here this morning before us is a congregation who has faithfully exercised discipline for the sake of an erring member and a member who, having been disciplined, 
by the church is now turning back. He is repenting of his sin as a result of the censure under which he's been placed. Now what shall the congregation do at this point? Well, you might think it obvious. I mean, it's a kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? When it comes to the Corinthian Christians, however, nothing seems to be obvious. He's actually repenting. What do we do now? <laughs> well, receive him. Open your arms to him. Restore him. Reclaim him. Comfort him. Love him. Now, says Paul. This is always the goal, you know, of church discipline. Always our goal in church discipline, that the wayward sheep be reclaimed. That, that, that the member be restored to the flock. This is why church discipline is exercised in true churches. One of the three main reasons true churches exercise discipline, the keeping and reclaiming of disobedient and erring sinners, the purity of the church. And most of all, of course, the glory of God. And make no mistake, where churches are true, they discipline. Because discipline is a mark of any true church, of the true church. Not the only mark, but one of them. You know as a congregation that this church exercises church discipline. Your leaders, the elders and pastor of this congregation, take this responsibility with full seriousness, knowing that it is to God that we're going to have to give answer. He's going to call your leaders to account. Jesus said that the very keys of the kingdom have been entrusted to the church's leaders to bind and to loose to receive and to put out of the kingdom. And inasmuch as those actions are in accordance with the law of God, when it is done by them on earth, the reality is also reflected in heaven. We know from passages like Matthew 18 that the judgments made by the church, assuming that they are faithful to God's word, of course, and that the sin in question is genuinely a sin, will have been ratified in heaven. And I say it that way because that's the way Jesus says it, using verbs that the grammarians call future perfects. Will have been, Jesus said. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been bound in heaven or loosed. Of course, heaven is not subject to earth. But the church, if it abides in God's will, can be confident that it will render those judgments that have already been made in heaven. And believe me, the leaders of this congregation feel that weight and the burden of it. What is sad, of course, is that the weightiness of church discipline is often felt only by the leaders of the church and not by the typical American congregant. How many church members who have faced the prospect of excommunication have taken that promise of Jesus seriously? What are you going to do? You know, bar me from the Lord's Supper? Oh, 
That's scary. But to the Christian in whom the Holy Spirit lives, who inhabits, whose heart is inhabited by the Holy Spirit, that is the most frightening place that a Christian can ever find himself barred from fellowship with God. That is, that's the darkest place he can be, cut off from the covenant blessings, cut off from, from the covenant, adrift under the covenant curses, subject to the buffetings of Satan. The church may not have the authority physically to arrest or detain or to execute The church's authorities actually much higher and much more enduring are its censures, more terrifying than anything any civil government could ever impose or affect, even with the sword. No judgment of an earthbound civil court, not even execution itself, holds a candle to the dread reality of the judgments of the court whose judgments are rendered and ratified in heaven itself. Not that the church punishes anyone, mind you. Punishment is not the church's business. That belongs only to the Lord. I really wish our English translations did not translate that word in verse 6 as punishment. This is the only place in the Bible that this word is used. Outside of the Bible, it refers, it describes the imposition of legal penalties and commercial sanctions. In this passage, it's obviously the former that is in mind, a formal and judicial judgment of the church through its leaders applied to a member who refuses to obey the law of God and that on God's behalf. But it is precisely the weightiness of that judgment that requires the church through its leaders to be even quicker about lifting any censure than it is about imposing it in the first place. At the first appearance of genuine repentance, of a true turning to Christ on the part of a person who has been placed under church discipline. The church must open its arms wide and receive the repentant sinner in Christ's name back into the fold. The church must be the father in that parable of the prodigal son. Remember how the son rebelled? How he effectively threw off everything, put himself outside of the family, threw off the authority of his father. What was the father to do? He had to let his son go, let his son feel the sting of his decisions and of his rebellion. He had to let his son, as painful as it was, come to the end of himself ride out his rebellion to its destination, seek to its depths until he found him in the very pigsty, jealous of the slop that was given to the pigs. But where were those father's eyes all that time? Do you remember? 
All the while they were fixed on the horizon. All the while he was watching, waiting for even the the crown of his son's head to appear over the horizon in the distance and to run to him and receive his son with open arms, with love and welcome back into the household, back into the fold again. This apparently was where the Corinthian congregation was now falling short. Their first problem was a failure to discipline. Now their struggle was to lift the sanctions of discipline when repentance was seen. And the latter failure was and continues to be today in the church every bit as dangerous as the former. If failure to exercise discipline in a church by failing to censure open disobedience leaves in the minds of their members the unmistakable impression that you can be a Christian but not live as a Christian is lethal. It's lethal to the to the Christian children, for the for that matter, to to all of the Christians, I say, if it is if that failure to exercise discipline is lethal, then failure to lift the censure from the repentant person leaves the unmistakable impression that there is no forgiveness, there is no grace, there is no possibility for restoration for the returning sinner, and that's just as lethal to the faith of all God's little ones. No, no, says Paul, with just as much vehement, he pleads. He literally begs the church, please reach out to him. He's returning, the returning Christian, reaffirm your love for him or her. And then he adds reasons, at least three of them. First, for his sake. We must receive the repentant Christian back and quickly so and forgive and comfort him for his sake because he may otherwise be, verse 7, be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The word we translate as overwhelmed was used of animals who devour their prey or of waters or waves of water like we've seen recently on on the news, that swallows up objects in its path and people. Refusing fully to welcome the returning penitent person leaves him or her in the very frightening and potentially overwhelming, drowning sea of grief. See, for a Christian, I say, in whom the Holy Spirit lives, being separated from God, being barred from the means of salvation, from the Lord's Supper in particular, is a sad, it is a devastatingly sad place to be, to know that fellowship with God has been broken, that that one hasn't a place at this table is, is is a crushing Wait for the one who loves the Lord, who delights in him. True Christians know that they're, they know from the word, they know from experience that their souls prosper in and through corporate worship. 
in the presence of God, in the presence of God's people, at his table, and that there is no substitute, absolutely no substitute for that, not private devotions, not watching church on TV. There is no substitute for the corporate worship of God. It is, as the Puritans said, the engine of the Christian life. What good is a car without an engine? What good is a Christian without worship? This is why several of you pack up your families, your little ones, and drive an hour each way to come to worship every Lord's Day. And that's why we mustn't refuse to love the disciplined but repentant person until he, until he, uh, you know, jump through our hoops or, um, you know, whatever they may be until he straightens up in all the ways that, and we think he needs to straighten up, you know, get your act together. No, no, no. There's no, there's no trial period. There's no penance for the truly repentant first to perform. No, no, no. Reaffirm your love for him, Paul says. The Greek word here was used in the papyri to denote the confirming of a sale or the ratification of an appointment. In other words, this confirmation of love also was a formal act. It was a formal act of the church, just as the imposition of discipline was was a a formal and judicial imposition of a censure. And it may not surprise you then to find out that our own uh, book of church order that we follow as a congregation, that PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, congregations follow and use, as no surprise to find that there is even a ceremony of sorts in our book with the language provided and everything which the church's leaders are to use the session formally to declare over that repentant person and to him that the censure that we imposed in Christ's name, in Christ's name now is lifted. You are restored. You are forgiven. It's a form, frankly, that I sincerely hope we'll someday get to use. In all these years, I should begin by saying, thankfully, in all these years, we've only had to impose these censures a few times in this congregation, but sadly, we have yet to see one of them return. We're still waiting. Our arms are open wide because they are the arms of Christ. Which brings me to the second point, the second reason that the church must eagerly and immediately reach out to the one who is returning, repentant, reaffirming our love and Christ's love for him or her. The first is for their sake. The second is for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake, because we live in the presence of Christ, verse 10. Everything we do, not only with a sense that Jesus is watching, but in the knowledge that he's here. Jesus is here and with us and even working through us for the sake of his returning sheep, for their restoration, for bringing them back into his pasture. Do you remember how precious even 
one lamb is to Jesus, even one straying little lamb to Christ. How he rejoiced, rejoices to see that, that missing one return. It caused him great, great concern and, and, and proportionally, maybe even more, maybe disproportionately is joy when that one is returned and restored to the flock. It is, it is admittedly a difficult phrase to understand there in verse 10, in the presence of Christ. It could be construed a, a few different ways, but one of those is this, as the commentator Colin Cruz translates it. What I have forgiven has been forgiven before the face of Christ that looks down with approval. Now, doesn't that make perfect sense from what you know from elsewhere in your Bibles? From Matthew 18, for example, probably the most formal description of this exercise of church discipline in your Bible, where Jesus says, remember, promises to be in our midst when two or three are gathered in my name. It's interesting that Jesus didn't make that promise in the context of worship. He didn't make that promise in the context of prayer meeting or Bible studies, uh, the way we typically, of course, apply that promise to be in our midst when two or three of us are gathered in his name, though it is true, of course, in all of those settings, but rather in the context of church discipline. Look it up, Matthew 18. When the church is exercising discipline, two or three gathered in my name, there I am. There I am in the midst of them. Dear flock, if we're going to be, and God help us to be, faithful in our application of church discipline, we must be every bit as demanding as our Savior Jesus Christ who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But... We must also be every bit as gracious as he who said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And to an erring Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers and come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We must be quick to restore that repentant person for his sake, for Christ's sake, and then third, for the sake of defeating Satan. Verse 11, maybe I should rephrase it for the sake of the kingdom, but you'll get the point, verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Dear flock, my brothers and sisters, make no mistake about this. Do not doubt Satan is desperately diabolically pursuing the sheep of God, you. If he cannot kill you by convincing your church 
just to forget about church discipline, leave it off, it's just too difficult, and all the reasons that are given these days. Well, then he will kill them by convincing a church to leave off forgiveness of the disciplined when they repent. And we've seen it go both ways, haven't you? You've seen churches go both directions. Churches that have been reduced to utter uselessness. They're no more than social clubs getting together under the banner of church because they they refuse to do the unpleasant task of disciplining erring members on the one hand or churches becoming so censorious the moment I don't remember if that's actually a word, but but so so full of censure, so ready to, to censure their members and to refuse to lift those members that when her erring members return, she refuses to bring them back, refuses to open the door, refuses to open her arms. You've seen churches that exercise shunning and, and shaming to manipulate their members. In fact, there was an article in the newspaper about such a church just a few days ago. That is not biblical church discipline. That is not what we practice in this church. But you know the kinds of churches I'm describing, and you know how once such a church shuns a member, a virtually impenetrable wall is erected so that even the most repentant, penitent, heartbroken members can never be restored or not fully restored to that fellowship again. See, Satan is just as pleased to take captive Christians that way as he is to have them left to their own devices by a church that is indifferent to their souls in the first place, refusing to be God's instrument of discipline, unpleasant as it may be, for the saving of their souls, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. Either way, Satan wins. Either way, the diabolical triumphs, and and we're not unfamiliar with his designs, are we? So we are going in Christ to deal blows to the devil as a congregation by, yes, Exercising church discipline where God's word requires it of us and in the way he requires us to do it. But also by lovingly lifting the centers of discipline the minute that the disciplined member, the prodigal son, appears on the horizon on his way back from the pigsty humbled and repentant to be fully restored to the Father's table once again. That is the pleasant outcome that we seek. Amen.